Our message this morning is entitled, A Minister's Heart, A Minister's Heart, and will come from the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Last Sunday, we began a new series together, an exposition, if you will, of the book of Colossians, and I'm looking forward to continuing this series with you here this morning in this run of verses from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Now, we said that we hope to have a baptismal service this morning, and so it's good that we only have three verses to consider, because maybe, just maybe, we can get done early and be on time with the baptismal service, considering only three verses together today. You know, in the Primitive Baptist Church, a short sermon is 40 minutes, and a long sermon is like an hour and 15 minutes. You think I'm a long-winded preacher, but I know preacher friends that In fact, in the state of Georgia, I've got a couple of preacher buddies that are probably starting to wrap it up about now because they're in the East Coast time zone. So we do hope to be a little less long-winded today in sharing these thoughts with you from Colossians 1, 9 through 12. Now, just by way of review, the Apostle Paul writes the book of Colossians, an epistle to the church at Colossae or Colossae from jail. Now, scholars are divided as to which imprisonment this is, the most logical choice is, of course, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He was imprisoned by the Romans a couple of times, but there were several other times when the Apostle Paul was incarcerated. You can read a couple of those in the book of Acts, and there are others that we simply don't know about because in his life, constantly the Apostle Paul was attacked and threatened and treated harshly by people who disagreed and used every power that they could to stamp out the gospel as it was preached in the world. And despite that, as we read last week, the gospel has gone out into the entire world and it brings forth fruit. God will not be mocked. God will not be defeated. And so try as you may, you can't stop the gospel. You can't stop the church. Paul writes this epistle that we are reading even today, some two millennia later, in a church on the other side of the world from a jail cell. Just think of the irony of that fact alone. Paul is imprisoned to stop him from preaching, and here we are reading a passage of Scripture that Paul wrote, imprisoned for preaching. God's Word wins. God wins. The Gospel wins. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the more the enemy in this world attacks... And the more the enemy in this world attempts to hinder and stop the gospel, the greater God will spread his word in this world. That's why in the times of the greatest persecutions of the faith, we find at the same time the seasons of the greatest growth of the church. It's not that persecution, as some people might use as an analogy, is a, a storm cloud that waters the plant of the gospel. It's simply that God wins, and when the enemy attacks him, he will openly thwart his enemies. And so just think about that as Paul writes this beautiful epistle. Some of the greatest language about Christ that you read in all of Scripture is found in this epistle. He writes it in a jail. He's in jail for preaching. And so God wins. Here we are two millennia later reading this that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. As he writes, his objective is to address some sort of hybrid system of error. He doesn't name it. He doesn't name the leaders of it. There are times when Paul would actually name names. 
This is a very gritty, seasoned minister. He has a very stern backbone, and he has very callous skin. And so when there's a time when the church is being inundated with heretics, well, he'll call them out by name. And he doesn't care if it hurts their feelings or anyone else's because they're threatening the church with what they teach. Here, he doesn't name the specific brand of error or even the specific teachers. But what he does is throughout this epistle, he sprinkles details of what they believe. As we noted last week, he refers to it as a philosophy. Philosophy was something that was very popular in the time, at the time in which Paul writes. And if you have ever taken a philosophy class in high school or college, you learned of things, ideas, worldviews that were popular in the world at the time of Paul's writing. And Paul would have his run-ins with the philosophers, certain Epicureans and Stoics in the book of Acts. He would refer to it as a philosophy, but he would also describe it as the worship of angels. And so we know through history and through Paul's writings that there was a cult of angel worshipers who lived here in this city. This church was also affected by legalism. They were being threatened by legalism in the form of asceticism. That is to say, touch not, taste not, handle not. These people would say to be a devoted follower of God, you must be a rigid stoic, that you can't enjoy life. I'm here to tell you that you can enjoy life in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not enjoying life, then there's something that you need to learn from Scripture because God would have us to be so joyful that even when imprisoned, we could sing praises to God at midnight, like Paul when he was in jail in the book of Acts. And so this church is being threatened by these various points of view, and Paul writes this, and the simple antidote for all of their trouble is Christ. Because as concerning asceticism and stoicism, we have joy in Christ, legalism, freedom in Christ. Concerning the worship of angels, Christ must have the preeminence because Christ is the creator of all and the savior of his people. He's translated us into his kingdom. He has authority and dominion in the world. And so whatever the problem is that they're dealing with, the solution is simple. It's a solution for all the problems we have today. That solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, in specific, we considered his introduction. We noted how he introduces himself to them. This is a church he's never attended. It was not a church that he founded. And so he introduces himself to them. No doubt they had heard of him and learned of him. They knew, all Christians knew, of the Apostle Paul. He spoke of their faithful pastor, Epaphras, who had told Paul of the great love that they have one to another. This church is not far down the road from another New Testament assembly, the church at Ephesus, and it's believed as Jesus rebuked the Laodiceans in the book of Revelation would that they were hot or cold, one or the other, that one of the comparisons there, hot or cold, had to do with the church in Colossae, because this was a very loving church, and Laodicea was a very lukewarm church. They were a very apathetic church. And so some people believe that Paul or Christ actually compares the Laodiceans' apathy with the love here in Colossae, which is an interesting thought to consider. They were in towns that were not far from one another. Paul commended their love one to another, as we already said, and 
He spoke of the gospel's expanding presence in the world as the gospel has gone out into all the world, the known world at that time. And it had come to them as it was in all the world, and it brought forth in them as it does in all the world. As a plant that brings forth fruit, the gospel has gone into human society, and it has impacted lives. There are people around the country meeting this morning, and where they hear sound preaching, as they hear biblical teaching and preaching, as they hear a portion of God's Word expounded upon to the best of the man's ability that's in the pulpit, there's fruit that's born in their lives when they come to church for the right reason to hear the Word of God expounded upon. And this all works not for our glory, but for the glory of God and for the edification of His people. As we think about the love that they had and the love that Paul commends that he wrote of, this prompts Paul to reveal his heart for them as he writes to them. And this is still a part of the introduction, but as we read last week, we read this entire sentence and how Paul's sentence builds upon itself and builds upon itself and the language is beautiful and glorifying to God and a masterpiece, a work of art, poetry almost, as he writes to them and he commends them. As he writes about their love and he commends their love one to another, it opens this opportunity for him to speak about his care for them. Now, this is cliche, but no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Have you ever heard that statement? Paul doesn't begin by saying, look, you've got some issues. I'm the expert. Let me help you figure this out. Paul says, listen, I love you. And so whatever else I say in this epistle, know that I love you and I pray for you and I thank God for you. And this is the foundation of everything that I'm going to share with you, he would say to the Colossians. Understand, whatever I write, it's written in love. In fact, Paul would say to the Corinthians, a church that he actually rebukes, not only does he rebuke them, you could say proverbially, he rakes them over the coals. He says in the 13th chapter of that, if he writes all these glorious things, if he speaks with the tongues of men and angels and has not charity, he's nothing. And so everything Paul writes, he writes with love, with charity in his heart to these brothers and sisters in Colossae, in Corinth, in Rome, in Ephesus, everywhere that he writes, he writes because he loves the people to whom he speaks or he writes. Let's read this passage today. Now just tying in verses 7 and 8, you learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. This begins our passage, verses 9 through 12. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet or appropriate to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now this sentence continues, if you notice it ends with a colon, and it continues for a few verses that we'll consider next week together. Sentence actually ends in verse 17. 
If I were to write a Facebook post or a blog entry and use that language, you can imagine the skeptic standing back saying, oh, he's waxing elegant or eloquent or poetic or any other word. He's trying to sound impressive, one might say, but the Spirit of God inspires Paul to use this beautiful, God-honoring language as he expresses his heart to this congregation. Now, remember, the title of our message today is what? A minister's heart. A minister's heart. As we look at verse 9, Paul says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you. I think it's safe to say that a minister's heart is never more revealed than when he prays to God for the people that are under his watch care. And remember the Apostle Paul, he's not pastor over one assembly. But because he is an apostle, as he says to the Corinthians, the charge, the care of all of God's churches are given to him. Now, I can just tell you that there's enough worry and stress and concern over one church, not even a big church, for one man to deal with. All right, we've got... I don't know, 50-something members here, and if everybody were here at the same time, and that never happens, but if everybody were here at the same time, you know, we'd have 60, 70 people. It'd be great. It'd be glorious. You'd think it's the next Pentecost. The clouds would part. Rays of sunlight would penetrate through. You'd hear an angelic choir. Champagne would fall from the heavens, and I would be very happy. But it's rare that everybody's ever here, right? There's enough to be concerned with in one average American-sized church, the average church in this country has less than 100 people. We let the megachurch mega be the face of American Christianity, and that's not accurate. Most churches look just like you as far as attendance and who shows up on a Sunday morning. They look like you. They're little families. And that looks more like what church looked like in Scripture. I think that's biblical. I've said it many times, if we outgrow here, I don't want to build a bigger building. I want to plant more churches in this county because there's something we have in a group this size that's very precious and very special. But there's enough to be concerned with when the pastor knows what's going on in the lives of the people that he preaches to, that he can lie awake in the middle of the night. He might need heartburn meds. He might take some years off his life because he worries about things that are going on in their lives so much. Understand, pastors have such a blessed job. We are with you in the best moments of your life. Your weddings, when your babies are born, until COVID, when they don't let me in the hospital. How annoying is that? Amen. Anyway, it's annoying to me, but I understand. I understand. And look, I don't need to be going breathing on a newborn baby in the middle of a pandemic. I get it. I met my own grandson, and I wore a mask because his parents said, you're not going to breathe on him without one. I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I'll wear that mask. Give me that baby. So I get it. I get it. But we're with you when your kids graduate. We rejoice with you when you get that job or that promotion, when you retire. All of the good moments, it's our privilege and our honor to go with you through. But, you know, we also go with you through the funerals and the diagnoses, and the marital trouble, 
and the issues with your kids. I've got calls late at night from people that I have served as a pastor whose kids run away, whose family members are missing, who have miscarriages and losses of children. Listen, there are things that you go through and your pastor, even if he's not physically with you in the room, he's right there with you in concern and prayer. And recently there were times when I would wake up in the middle of the night, the first thought that pops into my mind are church members dealing with viruses and troubles. And you know what? I lay there in bed praying until I fall back asleep. And I'm not special. This is just what a pastor does. It's just what a pastor does. Paul, not only does he have the charge over one church, which is enough, which that entire tangent was to say, it's enough. Paul has care over all the churches. And so he says, when I learned about your faith, I have not ceased to pray for you. I pray for you and for all of these other churches continually. I pray and I pray and I pray. And again, a pastor's heart is never more revealed than when he prays for people. And the ironic thing is that only he and the Lord know this. Because his prayers are in the closet, in the prayer closet. He goes into his closet and he prays. And he prays and he prays. Paul prays. Peter prays. James and John pray. Every real pastor prays for the people that are under his pastoral care. And yet the pouring out of the heart and the soul that happens is something that for the most part, overwhelmingly so, only God and the man know about. A pastor's greatest work is done in his prayer closet. You think, no, it's done in the pulpit. No, that's where he gets the most attention. But the work, the work occurs in the study and in the prayer closet where we hit our knees and we beg God on your behalf when there's trouble, when there's illness, when there's problems, when there are issues, we pray and we pray and we pray. And so Paul is praying for this church in Colossae. And that's why we entitled today's message, A Minister's Heart. Shouldn't it be entitled Spiritual Growth? Because as we begin to look at what Paul prays for, it's all about that they'll have good jobs and nice cars and nice houses. No. His prayer is that they grow spiritually. What did John say? I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. And as he says that, he's not talking about his biological children, though my heart says that too. Don't you parents love when you look next to you and you see your child singing or bowing in prayer or when they repeat something that was said on Sunday spiritual to you at some other time? And usually a lot of the time this happens when, you know, the parent is maybe a little bit out of the way. Well, dad, you know, you're not supposed to answer a matter before you hear it. Okay, thanks. Appreciate the rebuke. You know, Dad, you shouldn't let the sun go down on your wrath. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the rebuke. But there's no greater joy for a pastor, for a minister, than to see people growing in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what this is all about. It's why we do what we do. It's like a teacher whose students know the mathematical equations. And they all ace the test. How a teacher must feel when that happens. Or when someone who, who works with young musicians, when they have musicians that 
make Allstate and make district. I tell you what, years that, that my students make all of those honor bands, I walk around at all of these because I show up at them. And I, that's my student. My thumbs are in my lapel and I'm walking around like a rooster or a peacock at the zoo. You know, what teacher doesn't rejoice that the student excels? Pastors rejoice when they see growth in the congregation that they serve. And it is the greatest privilege and honor that a man could ever have to fill that role from cradle to grave in the lives of God's children. It is our greatest honor and our greatest privilege. It's a labor of love because we love you, we love the Lord, we love the gospel, we love the church. And despite all the issues we work through in our lives, we love you. And our desire, our heart, is that you would grow. Now sometimes this takes lifting you up with messages of grace. Sometimes this takes loving, loving rebuke and admonishment and concern. Uh, and, concern. and those are the things that those messages I always feel deflated and depressed after because I'd much rather preach grace. But the minister preaches to the edification of God's people that they would grow. Let's begin looking specifically at the things that the Apostle Paul would say. What he prays for. He's going to give them inside information. What is it that you pray for, Paul, when you pray for this church at Colossae? And you said you've not ceased to pray for them. You pray for them continually. There are times when we go to prayer and it's very, very specific, very devoted, very consecrated, sanctified, where I will say, all right, I'm going to pray and I'm going to go through the list and we're going to pray and we're going to pray and we're going to pray. And I might look at the list. Sometimes I've told you this before. I walk around the sanctuary. I look at where you sit and I pray for you when I look at where you sit because we're primitive Baptists and we have assigned seating. God help the soul that comes in here and sits in your seat, right? Oh, you won't make a move. You just might look at them a little bit. They're like, what am I doing wrong? You're in my spot. Didn't you see that pillow there? That blanket is my blanket. Can't you see my Bible is in that pew? Well, I look at your spot and I pray. And I pray. But you know what? There are days when I wake up and the thought hits my mind, Lord, bless them to be disciples today. I might be washing my hair and I think, Lord, the people at church need prayer right now. Lord, be with them. I might be driving down the road. It might be 15 minutes before I have a gig or a concert and I'm about to play. But the thought of you pops into my head because no matter what I'm doing, you're there. You're there in my mind. And I will pray for you. It might be 30 seconds. It might be an hour. But the pastor's always praying for the people that are under his watch care if he is indeed a pastor, a shepherd of God's sheep. Paul says, I've always prayed for you since I learned of you. You know, there's some things that I, I put on the outline today. There, there, are, there are things that he brings to God that are only between him and God, that are secrets that he... Sometimes the people and God only know about. There are times when a man of God will have a burden to pray for you, and he doesn't even know why. 
And I have learned when I have a burden to pray, and let me tell you, just about every family here I've felt that way about before, where I will just think, you know, that brother or that sister is on my mind, and I feel burdened to pray for them this week, and I don't even know why, but I'm going to pray for them. Sometimes I'll text you, if you ever get that message out of the blue, we could have just averted an entire crisis that you never, and I never even knew was going to happen. Because the Holy Spirit, and listen, He doesn't speak from heaven, pray for this person. No, He burdens me. And I get you on mind, and I begin to think about you, and I think, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to pray for them in specific today. And God works that way through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul prays for them. He prays for them. Sometimes you can't even explain it, but Paul prays for them. Specifically about his prayer. If there was a single way to categorize his prayer or label his prayer, it would be for spiritual growth. So in a sense, not only are we learning about the prayer life of this great man of God and his care for this congregation, we're actually getting a glimpse into how Paul would define growth. What does spiritual growth look like? You know, we love to end messages on the subject of growing and discipleship on Peter's last words in 2 Peter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We love to to end sermons on that note, but it leaves the question hanging in your mind. What does spiritual growth look like? There are several different lists of personality traits and characteristics in Scripture that you could study, and this is one such. For this cause also, we, since the day we heard of it, did not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What do we read? We pray for you that you might be filled with knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, continuing, that to the intent you might walk worthy of the Lord and do all pleasing, walking worthy, pleasing God by the things that you do, specifically being fruitful in every good work, being a tree that brings forth fruit, and increasing in the knowledge of God, growing in what you know about the Lord as a byproduct, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. You're strengthened, and then you have greater resistance to the things of this world. And lastly, giving thanks unto the Father. Spiritual growth culminates in thanksgiving. The last step of this is thanksgiving, to be thankful to God for what He has done for you. Now let's back up and briefly go into these various descriptions of spiritual growth, and Lord willing, 10 minutes or so, we'll bring our message to a close and go into our baptismal service. You thought I was lying. You said He can't do it. With God, all things are possible. First of all, to be filled with the knowledge of His will. 
We have prayed that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. How might one be filled with the knowledge of the will of God? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Don't you wish you knew the agenda of God at all times in human history? You know, it's kind of like when you read all the spoilers to a cliffhanger and you know it's going to work out and you know everything's going to be okay. And so you can go and sit in the movie and when everybody's on the edge of their seat, you're sitting there eating popcorn, you're sipping your Coca-Cola because you know everything is going to be all right. And that's fiction. To know the will of God, to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God about this world, imagine the blessing and the peace that that gives someone. Why, that would be a peace that passeth all understanding, wouldn't it? Guess what? We don't know exactly what God does in the world each and every day in specific, because who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? But we do know God's agenda for the future of this world, the ultimate end of this world, and the deliverance of his people in glory at the end of time. In fact, we know that time will end not because the universe ceases to expand and suddenly collapses back on itself, but time will end because Christ returns and Christ will destroy the universe with fervent heat and deliver his people to the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. On that last day, Jesus comes again and everything is over. His people are gathered together with him like a shepherd with his sheep. And he will take them, those blessed of his father, to inherit a kingdom prepared for them from before the foundation of the world, according to Matthew 25. And so, in a sense, we do know God's will for the world. Not in every minute detail of human life, but we know that before the end of the world, there'll be a falling away. And so beware. We know that the man of sin will ascend and in some sense sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And there will be a great deception given to this world. So beware. We know that men shall be lovers of themselves. Proud, disobedient to parents, boasters, blasphemers. And so beware. We know what God will do in the world through His Word. How might the Christian then know what is and be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in his or her life? We know it through the Word. In fact, according to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed it out and is profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so how you and I know how we are filled with the knowledge of His will is by, as we have read for the past several months in our Scripture reading, a piece at a time from Psalm 119. You know that through His Word. You bury it in your heart, in your mind. You ingest it. Over and over in Scripture, prophets of God that are given the Word of God are given the metaphor of eating a scroll that was bitter in their belly, but sweet to their tongues to taste. We ingest the Word of God, and that's how we know His will. We are filled with His will. Continuing, we are filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom 
and spiritual understanding. These are interesting categories, interesting descriptive terms. First of all, we want to be filled with His knowledge, the knowledge of His will in all wisdom. You might say that wisdom is knowledge applied. How to use and apply wisdom, the knowledge of God that is. How to take what you read in this Word and use it to walk in this world. If you want a lengthy study on wisdom, just go through the book of Proverbs and count how many times the word wisdom occurs in it. If this were a full-length message, we would do that with you. But the Proverbs were written that a man would know wisdom in chapter 1. And throughout the book of Proverbs, we read about wisdom over and over and over. Even that the wisdom of God is as eternal as God Himself. It was there with Him before the world was created. God's wisdom. But in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 24, we read that Jesus Christ is the will of God, uh, the wisdom of God personified. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God personified. And so to know wisdom in truth is to know and follow Christ. So if you're wondering what's the secret to knowing wisdom, well, studying the Proverbs is one, but learning from, learning about, and emulating the person and the teaching of Christ is the secret to wisdom in this world, to know, to have knowledge of His will in all wisdom. Secondly, and spiritual understanding. I meditated on that phrase a little this week. What do we mean, spiritual understanding? Well, as opposed to academic or intellectual understanding, as opposed to carnal reasoning, a natural man could look at creation and come to the conclusion that we are created and this world is created by some creator somewhere with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Just look out, the heavens declare the glory of God. But we trust that there's an understanding that we have that is not carnal, is not the result of the intellect, is not the result of weighing the evidence, but is spiritual. When the Apostle Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, what did Jesus say unto him? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but what? But my Father which is in heaven. He had a spiritual understanding of the identity of Christ. Not a mere historic understanding, but a spiritual understanding in his heart, he knew and believed that it could be no other way. Old preachers used to parallel and contrast a head knowledge versus a heart knowledge. I hope to have both, but certainly a spiritual understanding, being filled with the knowledge of the will of God in this world, is something that comes from God revealing His truth to you. He doesn't funnel it in, but what we do know about Him, we know through revelation. He has revealed it to us. Verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, 
Walking worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. That means if you know things about God, it ought to change the way that you live in the world. A call to holiness. A call to righteousness. The Pharisees knew all sorts of doctrine from the Old Testament and the scribes. But Jesus describes them as platters and cups that on the outside were filth or on the outside were clean but the inside were filthy full of extortion and excess now he expects us to live righteous lives in this world for the right reason why because we're filled with knowledge and understanding of the will of God that we might walk worthy of the Lord and do all pleasing who's pleasing the pleasing of God to please Him with our walk, being fruitful in every good work. Think of yourself as a fruit tree that is watered by the gospel and nourished by the nutrients of God's Word, and you grow in the sunlight, and you, in your seasons, bring forth fruit that is pleasing to God. You know, you might wonder, what does it mean to bring forth fruit? And I've tried to make this point so many times in the past. There are moments when God opens extraordinary doors for you to walk through. When you think, this is amazing and unprecedented. God is glorifying himself through this situation. But being a fruitful Christian, it's about loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your children. Praying with them before they go to bed or before meals or when they wake up in the morning before they start their school day. Kissing your wife on the head and saying, I love you. Making her feel secure and loved and safe. Sacrificing yourself for your family, for your children. You wives, when you're cleaning up the mess at the end of the day, and I know it's annoying because I see it. You have these children and they're like little tornadoes that every time you get another one, there's another tornado running around the house. And they make messes, and you think this is really annoying because I just cleaned this house 24 hours ago. But as you're, as you're keeping the home, as it were, and you're managing your household, just think, this is a way that I get to show them love and love my husband and love my God. It's in the mundane that the Christian can bring forth the most fruit because those are most of our opportunities. And so we can... Bring forth fruit, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I hope that you know more about God's Word and His will for your life now than you did last week. And I hope you know you knew more last week than you did the week before, and the week before, and the week before. Because the purpose of preaching and teaching and Bible studies and everything else that we do is that you might learn and that you might grow in knowledge. There's so much I'd love to say about that. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened, verse 11, with all might. When we become filled with the knowledge of the will of God, and we walk in a way that pleases Him, and this knowledge is in wisdom and spiritual understanding, and you increase in the knowledge of God, A byproduct of that in your life is that you're going to be a stronger Christian. Don't we want to be stronger Christians? That's how we get there. 
You know, so many times a young guy, maybe, maybe he's 30, maybe he says, you know what, I'm not as strong as I used to be. I want to look like these guys that I see on Marvel films and superheroes. And when I was a little kid, it was Arnold, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. But now we've got all these other celebrity superhero guys that lift weights for four hours a day. And you think, man, I saw him bench pressing 400 pounds, and you go up and load up a couple of hundred pounds, and it falls on your chest. You're like, honey, help! You know how you get that strong? is by starting with the first step with a little bit of resistance and you add to it and you add to it and you add to it and the next thing you know, you are stronger. Stronger than you would ever believe. Even if you've gone from proverbially bench pressing 75 pounds to 125 when you really don't think anything less than 300 is impressive, The 75-pound version bench pressing you would look at the 125 and say, wow, have I grown. I couldn't have done that three months ago. Don't discount the growth that you've had. But understand that as we learn and we worship, we are to grow and we are to be stronger. We will be stronger as we study and grow. Strengthened with all might. Now notice this caveat. According to what? Our own intellect our own discipleship and prowess as Bible students. No, even in our strength, our growth is dependent upon the power of God in us. According to His glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. And so as we grow and we are strengthened, listen to this, We're strengthened unto, first of all, patience. Do you know the word patience in the New Testament finds its usage primarily in moments of persecution and affliction? We grow and we are strengthened. And as strong believers, we learn how to suffer persecution As disciples of Christ. Now, you might have just thought the message took a U-turn. Wait a minute. That's not the type of growth that I wanted to hear about. To grow to the extent to stand in persecution and be faithful as a lamb done before the shearers like Christ. But as we grow and we are stronger, it enables us to withstand the persecution and to be faithful to Christ even unto death with all long-suffering And believe it or not, what's the last word there? Joyfulness. I can grow to the extent that I would be joyful even in persecution. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Lastly, as we think about spiritual growth, the final thing that we learn of in the ascent to growth, as it were, being a stronger Christian, is that no matter what we go through, with joy, we're to be thankful to God in all things. A thankful heart, a thankful heart, despite the circumstances, is the epitome of a mature Christian, the heart of a mature believer. Let's pray together as we bring our message to a close. Father, thank you so much for this portion of Scripture. We pray that it encouraged all that heard it. We pray, Lord, for this baptismal service we now engage in in a moment. 
And Lord, we look forward to communion this afternoon. Thank you for giving us such a blessed day where we get to enjoy both ordinances and, and public worship on this Lord's day. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. We say amen.